In 2010, Professor Davis was the seventh scholar to receive the Holberg Prize. The academic committee stated that Natalie Zeman Davis's contribution has provided many opportunities for innovative cross-fertilization between disciplines. She writes beautifully and knows how to tell a story, while at the same time remaining scrupulous in handling her empirical data or sources. The creativity and fearlessness of her work have inspired many younger historians, encouraging them to follow their own curiosity. Today, Natalie Davis is the first Holberg Prize laureate to give the Holberg Lecture. Her topic is dealing with strangeness, language and information flow in a colonial slave society. Professor Davis, the floor is yours. Please welcome Professor Davis. Uh, I'm expecting my gratitude, not only old friendships with Norwegian scholars and young people in the past, but making friends at, at Bergen, uh, being back uh, in, in Norway uh, after the difficult times in 2011 from which Norway rises with resilience and hope, and then having the enormous pleasure of being welcomed uh, here uh, at the Norwegian Institute of Science and Technology. What a treat, and, and it, it was indeed a treat for me to see some of the graduate students, hear about some of their projects, and look forward to hearing more in the future. Uh, so, I, so thank you for letting me be part of this, uh, this celebration. So, dealing with strangeness. Inga Clendenin begins her beautiful book, Dancing with Strangers, with encounters in 1788 between Pacific peoples and Europeans as British Navy men touch land for the first time on an Australian shore. Communication between the English seamen and the Australians took off when the men began to dance together, holding hands and circling round while everyone sang in his own language. Though the future held in store relations that were much less peaceable and much less egalitarian, Clendenin still finds this beginning of relevance in understanding what Australians and English could learn about each other. Not inner worlds of mind and spirit, but at least, at least externalities, some of which could be tolerated. When I first read Clendenin's paper, pages, I thought how different was this Pacific encounter of free men from those which I have been following between Africans and Europeans on the Atlantic slave ships and on the plantations of the Dutch colony of Suriname. European agents for African trading companies and ship captains observed dances in the areas for which they acquired slaves and other trade goods, but never participated in those dances or were invited to do so. On board the slave ships, the African men and women were brought up on deck by the sailors and made to dance for exercises, the men stumbling in their chains. On the Dutch ships, captains were instructed to have African drums and other instruments aboard to keep the people uh, moving. And by the way, that is true also on the Danish-Norwegian uh, Friedrichsborg slave ship. On the plantations, 
Dancing began in the slave quarters as soon as the work stopped late Saturday afternoon and often continued all day Sunday. Europeans were sometimes able to watch these dances and wrote about them and even painted them. But taking part in them was unwanted and unthinkable. When dance crossed lines of color in Suriname at all, it was among free people, as at the so-called mulatto balls of the later 18th century, attended by people of color and some of the Jewish settlers. In these settler slave societies, language and translation were central means of dealing with strangeness, an unfamiliarity that lasted even after a locally born generation of unfree children grew up on the plantations. Along with cultural gaps, the relations of power among the speakers certainly affected the back and forth flow of information, both its presentation and its reception. To explore this flow, I'm going to concentrate on two language books dictionaries produced in Suriname through active collaboration between Europeans and persons of African descent. I am purposely looking at people in close contact, since different issues can be at stake in an intimate setting that do not arise if you just look at larger transactions. Such encounters on a large scale are often interpreted in, ter in terms of the opacity of, of the two sides to each other, they can't, can't even see each other, or in terms of the power acquired by one side through the knowledge extracted or the point of view imposed. Here, when people are trying to, get, to find word equivalents, just working together, is there also the possibility of joint learning along with the imposition and of understanding and illumination along with miscomprehension, deception, and silence? Is there space for resistance and ambivalence as well as enforcement and control? Well, let's look together at these people at work finding meaning like this indifference across boundaries not always easy to cross. The first generation of Africans arriving in Suriname had to deal with language barriers already on the slave boat. Captains often hired free Africans, a, a free African, or sometimes more than one, who knew some of the languages of the regions from which people had been captured. His job was to translate orders for conduct during the voyage and to report any signs of mutiny. In addition, young men considered trustworthy among the captives were selected out to be what were called bombas, that is, directors of, of the captive work crews, taught some phrases in Dutch, and rewarded with extra food rations, the bombas were also expected to inform on, on any sign or word of revolt. Meanwhile, in their separate holds, the captive men and women were trying to find a common language among their African tongues, or to create a pigeon for the Middle Passage some of them able to draw on a Portuguese Creole language current along the African coast. These language exercises were good preparation for their future life in Suriname. But let me shift for a moment now and introduce you to that colony. Founded initially by the Dutch, uh, by the English, founded initially by the English, Suriname had become a Dutch colony in 1669. And here is a, an 18th century map. <laughs> Uh, just, just to give you a little of reality effect with the Atlantic up at the top in the north, uh, on your right, uh, what, what will be a French, col French colony, uh, on your left, another Dutch colony. There we have Suriname and the rivers on which these plantations were, were, were built. 
Now the initial settler population had been mixed. Dutch, English families who stayed on after the Dutch took over, many French Huguenots, many Portuguese Jews, and by mid-18th century, when we pick up the story, Germans, Swiss, Swedes, I haven't come across any people from Norway, <laughs> but you never can tell, but there are a number of Swedes there, and German Jews had been added to a European population of about 2,500 people. To the sugar plantations, which had been the colony's original hope for profit, had now been added coffee, cocoa, cotton, and, tim and timber plantations. These crops were produced by the strenuous labor of some 50,000 slaves of African origin. So high was their death rate, and so low their rate of fertility, that the majority of these men and women were still, quote, salt water people, sota watra soma in the local language, who had been carried to Suriname on the harsh middle passage. Some of them had been brought up in, in Angola and the Congo, others in the Gold Coast, many more from the kingdoms along the Bight of Benin, that is present-day Benin, Togo, and western Nigeria, others yet from inland kingdoms. In the dense rainforests stretching out beyond their plantations were villages of indigenous peoples, Caribs, Arawaks, Wayanas, and others, and even more populous, the settlements of a few thousand Maroons, men and women who had escaped from the plantations and their progeny, divided into two constructed Maroon tribes, the Juca and the Saramaka. From time to time, groups of Maroons came down from the rivers to attack the plantations, get provisions, and assist slaves to escape. And here is a picture of a plantation, <laughs> uh, in one of the plantations in, in Suriname, just to give you a sense of how they looked to an observer in the 18th century. Out of the babel of tongues spoken in Suriname had emerged early two associated Creole languages. One was known as Neger Angles, or Neger Engelesha, black English is, we would translate, called Sranan today by its speakers and by linguists. It had an English and West African lexicon and, and vocabulary and an African substrate or, or grammar. We should see Neger Angles as a creation not of plantation owners and managers, but of elite slaves and not so elite slaves, but, but certainly the black drivers, the craftsmen, the cooks, the domestic services, servants and seamstresses who were back and forth between the great house and the manager's office on the one hand, where they heard the European words, and the slave houses and gardens. Sranan was taken into the forest by the maroon jukas and expanded with a generation of children born and growing up on the plantation known as the criolas, from our word creole, but creole was, means locally born. A second Creole language emerged in a similar way on the plantation of the Portuguese Jews with an African substrate and a lexicon of Portuguese and West African words along with the English words. Known locally as Jew-Tongo, Jewish language, Tongo being, and you can see the connection with English, Tongo being the word for language and Jew being their word for Jewish, Jewish language. Known as Jew-Tongo, it was carried into the forest by the early escapees from the Jewish plantations whose tribe became known as the Saramakas, and the language is now called Saramakan. Over the decades from 1700 to 1750, these Creole languages developed to cover the complex life of the slaves. 
growing on the plantations and across the porous boundaries between the plantations and on the rivers. Words concerned with family life and kin ties, work activities, religious belief and practice, food treatment and taboos, illness, healing, harming, storytelling, and much more. Of the Europeans resident on the plantations, the white driver, the man who had most direct control daily with the, over the slave work, called in Swanen the Bakra Basia. He had to know sufficient Nenger angles or Jew Tongo to give daily directions to the black driver, the Nengra Basia, the black driver, to order punishment and to be aware of the mood and goings, goings on among the slaves. This is, oh, I meant to show you the Jewish, uh, the Jew, some of the Jewish plantations. Let me move ahead. Another. Uh, and here, um, on the sugarcane fields, uh, here, weeding and harvesting. Can you see him? There is the black driver with the whip in his hand, which he maybe uses or maybe doesn't use, but he just held it. The plantation manager or director, as he was called, in Dutch, director, uh, we call him in English overseer or manager, the Dutch called him director, or drick, uh, and the, the word in, in, in Swanen was directoro, or they just called him the masra, a version of, of master. He might know the language uh, just enough to give commands to his officers and house slaves, though some directors, only a very small number around 1750, learned to speak it rather well. Sometimes their teacher was a house slave or a slave concubine. A similar rage was found among plantation owners and their families, who even if they had a house in the town of Paramaribo, that's the one town there, Paramaribo, or at the Jewish village known as Jew Savannah, resided part of the time in the plantations. It was in such a situation in the 1750s that a man named Peter Van Dyke decided to prepare a Dutch Neger Engels vocabulary and instruction book. Van Dyke had come to Suriname from the Netherlands as a young man and had spent years as a manager or a white, drive, a white overseer on a coffee plantation on the Kamawine River. His goal, he said, was to teach owners and managers, quote, to understand the slaves and be understood by them. But his book was to have another purpose. Through dialogues in Neger English, in Sranen, to show owners and managers, quote, how to make oneself respected and loved without committing the inhuman cruelties that sometimes become part of the work in Suriname. Indeed, observers' accounts from Suriname in the late 17th through 18th century talk of extended beatings of slaves with whips especially chosen for their sting, after which the open wounds were rubbed with lime, ju lime juice and pepper, and of the Spanish buck, as it was called, when the slave was whipped first on one side, then on the other, with hands tied around the knees and a stick holding him or her to the ground. In a horrendous case in the 1740s, on a pl plantation off the Kamawine, right near the coffee plantation where Peter Van Dyke was manager, uh, uh, on this other plantation, the manager accused a slave woman of poisoning slaves who had in fact died from his ill treatment, had her whipped, and himself tortured her to get her to get her to admit her guilt, which she never did, and finally beheaded her as the other slaves shouted out, she's innocent. 
During the 1750s, uprisings took place on many plantations, and the forest trails were filled with escapees to the Maroons. Making peace with the colonial government in 1759, the Maroon Juca spokesman blamed all this on managers, quote, drunkenly abusing us according to their pleasure, having sex with our women, and neglecting our sick. Van Dyke and the slaves on his plantation knew these stories, and they are echoed in, in his book. Uh, here is the title page in Dutch. Uh, New and Unprecedented Instruction in Black English. Though he did not mention collaborators in his preface, it would have been absolutely impossible for Van Dyke to prepare this book without extended input from accomplished speakers of the tongue. The instruction opens with vocabulary lists in Srenan and Dutch organized by theme. For instance, in the section on kinfolk, this long section on kinfolk, the elders, tata, mama, are distinguished from the reiti, the right grandparents, thus giving a brief glimmer of the important role of ancestors in African religious belief. Twelve dialogues illustrate possibilities in conversation, though only two of them seem to be between slaves. The others involve masters giving orders or asking questions of slaves, with brief responses from the latter. Where is my coffee? <laughs> the slave says, coming master. And also, curiously enough, Europeans talking Sranan among themselves, which very, in fact very rarely happened at that date. The most innovative feature of the instruction is a play in Sranan with Dutch translation entitled The Life and Business of a Suriname Plantation Manager with the slaves on a coffee plantation. The manager displays the worst possible traits. He drinks to excess, orders long whippings, and the Spanish buck when simply the coffee water is slow to boil, or when a slave complains of a stomach ache. Shoots and kills the black hunter, because there was always a slave hunter in every plantation. Shoots and kills the black hunter when there is no game to be had, and forces a married woman to his bed, leading her husband to commit suicide. Both the black and white drivers in the play, the Nangrabasia and the Bakrabasia, try in vain to dissuade the manager. The black driver does the ordered, ordered punishment half-heartedly, but he allows the wife to flee the plantation. Mm -hmm. Other slaves escape to the Maroons, and those that remain in the plantation call a meeting chaired by the, the cook, Lucrezia, who is head of, the house, the head of the house slaves. She addresses them in the courteous fashion practiced among the slaves as Mastra Negri, Master Blacks, and they appoint one of their number to sneak away and inform the owner of the plantation who lives in Paramaribo. And you have here the trope of the good owner, if only he knew, and the bad manager. And in fact, the manager is duly replaced. In celebration, I'm going on with the play, the black driver gets permission for a night of dancing and drumming, which the old manager uh, had prohibited. And the next day, the black driver presides over a funeral for a woman who had died through ill treatment. The ritual in the play follows the African practices adapted by the slaves of Suriname, from the prescribed way of carrying and singing to the corpse to the goodbyes to the soul of the dead as it returns to its ancestors. You see, this is all quite intimate information that really would only be available to the slaves themselves. Ajusi konotizisa, wakabon, taki olazomi audi, korboi, minimziki gadad na yo. Farewell, good night, sister. Get home safely and say hello to everyone. 
goodbye. My namesake God will help you. Now the namesake God, the Nemsiki Gado, is each person's special ancestral spirit whom they meet in the next world. The slaves eat and drink near the grave and leave food for the deceased. The play ends as the black driver says a last goodbye to her. Koneti mi hati lobi, koneti fo ale master negere, waki bon. Goodbye, sweetheart. Goodbye from all the master blacks. Travel well. Peter Van Dyke's collaborators must have been, at least in the first instance, the slave elite on the plantation. The black driver, the Negrobasia, the leading woman, usually the cook at the great house, and the, Creo and, and, uh, and the Creolo mama, uh, the Creole mother, who is the woman who took charge of the locally born children and taught them language when their mothers were working in the field, after the period where the mothers had nursed, when they would take them to the field uh, on their backs. Uh, they were then taken over from the age of about two to the age of about 14 by this woman, by the Creole mama. Uh, th this, uh, and so a very interesting figure who, who was really in charge of teaching these children to speak Creole. She was a combination of a babysitter and a nurse and a teacher. They themselves, these, these women, may have consulted with other slaves. Appointed as a young man, uh, the Basia was by 1750, if not earlier, uh, ordinarily born in, in Suriname, with Sranen as his tongue since birth. And in this, in this picture of the dance, here he is. I showed you him with his whip. Here he is at the dance, standing somewhat apart. He's got a, a weapon in his belt, uh, and he is, he's watching what's going on. This, this is the figure that is a particularly interesting figure. He was a complex figure who had the ear of his superiors, and if he were had to have any success at all, had to be trusted by his fellow slaves. This meant combining the political skills of an African chief learned from his parents and the many saltwater blacks, the Sotawater Soma, on the plantation who had come from Africa, with local-born savvy about what to pass on to the white bosses. Control of information was one of his most precious tools. The leading cook or seamstress uh, at the big house was most uh, often, uh, excuse me, was most often born in Suriname, not always, and had to have similar skills of communication if she were going to protect the plantation women and win favors for them and her kin, say, an easing up workload for a heavily pregnant woman. She had to be in touch with the women healers, diviners, midwives, and leading women dancers in the plantation on the one hand, and know what to tell the white mistress and master and manager on the other. Well, what stakes would the Basia the Negrobasia, the head cook, the Creole Mama, and other elite slaves have in cooperating with Peter Van Dyke on a Stranan Dutch instruction book. To begin with, it was a chance to learn some Dutch and improve their knowledge of the interests of owners and managers, always helpful to slaves and subalterns of any kind. Learning language and translating were part of plantation life, as arrivals from Africa and young children were taught by other slaves to speak Neger Angles or Jew Tongo, and as occasionally new words were improvised. This is a language that's continually growing. Insofar as Van Dyke told his informants the shape of his book, they might have been interested by his vocabulary lists. We don't know how the slaves themselves conducted language instruction or how they drew on extensive memorization techniques 
that they had in Africa. I would just give anything to know. But we know in, that memorization, uh, where you, you didn't have writing, was extensive. I mean, you know, senior theses would be done by memory. Uh, uh, and if the play became, and if uh, the fact that it was a play became known to them, as Van Dyke verified phrases and expressions, they might have found the details of its plot believable. These things had just happened. Indeed, they presumably supplied some of those details. But its use of dramatic genre too literal and down to earth. When storytellers in Sranan acted out a tale of plantation life, they followed the African practice of interweaving talking animals and the supernatural into the account. And for those slaves who remembered full dramatic performance at a, a, a an African funeral, say in Yoruba land, it, this play went beyond the, the drumming and dance in Van Dyke's play to include masks and an actor playing the person of the dead. In other words, these especially the ones from Africa, had, uh, had a whole world of, of theater, but it was very, very different from the kind of 18th century everyday life theater that was in this play. Whatever the case here, Van Dyke's helpers might at least appreciate Van Dyke's hope that spreading the knowledge of Sranen would improve the conduct of managers and owners, even though they could hardly be optimistic. And finally, they themselves had some power in the situation. They could withhold information as they wished, and surely did so. Surinam Nengrabasia went well beyond the mildly protesting uh, uh, driver in Van Dyke's play when dealing with excessively pun punitive managers or owners. Unknown to the whites, a good number of maroon attacks on the plantations were at the invitation of the black drivers themselves. And some of the mass escapes had the Nengrabasia had the black drivers at their head. Uh, this was a subject on which to keep one's silence. Van Dyke took the manuscript of the instruction to Amsterdam for publication around 1763, since Suriname had no printing press until the 1770s. The book had some readers. John Gabriel Stedman, whose pictures you have seen on a few occasions earlier, referred to th this book in, in his celebrated narrative of his years in Suriname and a later Sranan Dutch dictionary copied much of its vocabulary. The life of a plantation manager inspired another play induced, uh, intended to reduce plantation cruelty some decades later in Suriname. And the book may have had some impact on reform of local legislation. In 1784, hanging a slave by the wrist for beating, which you saw the picture of, was prohibited in Suriname. At least it was prohibited, whether they was followed was another matter, but at least it was prohibited. And at least in the Van Dyke book, people of different ancestral origins, social status, cultural traditions, and relations to literacy produce a text that perpetuates the status difference, but shows a common humanity in words and deeds. Van Dyke's instruction carried no mention of Christian teaching or devotion. And the Nemseki Gada, Gada that is the namesake God, called upon at the funeral was the only sign of religious belief. This is no accident, for there had been little effort at conversion on the Christian plantations by the mid-18th century. Reformed pastors, all of them owners of plantations, and other Christian-minded proprietors sought to baptize only those few slaves who were likely candidates for emancipation, for manumission, as they called it. These were mostly mulattoes, people who had a white 
father uh, and others perceived as unusual who were taught a little Dutch. In 1731, a Dutch-speaking pastor had arrived from the Netherlands full of zeal to convert all the Caribs, Arawaks, and African slaves, but he was soon sent packing. Plantation owners feared conversion would make their slaves restless and uppity. For decades, white overseers were heard telling their slaves in Sranen that blacks had been created by the devil and that, quote, the Christian God was just for white people. Actually, the whole phrase went, and you hear it over and over again. Black people are created by the devil to grow sugar and coffee for white people, and the Christian God is just for white people. All of this was a matter of indifference to the many slaves practicing the Afro-Surinamese religions with their own lookamon, seers, from the word look, the lookamon, their own gadomen, grandmama, and grandtata, that is their priests and diviners who communicated with the gods, their winty dances, winty is the word for, for wind, who were possessed by the gods, blown, like the wind blows you, the gods blow you, winty dances, who were possessed. But one group of Christians was unwilling to see Suriname remain in the clutches of unbelief. The recently founded Moravian Brethren, those worldwide evangelicals. Despite their insistence to slave owners that conversion to Christianity brought only freedom from damnation, not freedom from slavery, the brethren were still unwelcome on most plantations. Thus, after the colonial government had made peace with some of the Maroons, the brethren turned to proselytizing them in their rainforest villages, especially among the Saramacas. Lear, uh, learning, the languages, learning the languages of the free blacks, as the brethren always called the Maroons, the free blacks, that was urgent. Quote, we are spending our time learning the Portuguese speech, which the free blacks have learned from the Jews. A missionary wrote back to the brothers in Herrenhut in Germany in 1766. It was in this setting that brother Christian Ludwig Schumann decided a decade later to compose a Saramakan German dictionary for himself and his fellow Moravians. Such an endeavor was an established missionary practice. Back in the 1630s and 1640s, for example, a Dutch reformed missionary in, the for in Formosa constructed a Dutch Sinkan vocabulary of prayers, while two preachers in Dutch Brazil prepared a catechism in Tupi Dutch Portuguese. In the late 18th century here in Trondheim, as you know, Knud Lem and the Sami, Sami convert Anders Porsanger, both Lutheran priests and missionaries, were producing their studies of Sami. For our Suriname brother Schumann, at the heart of his project was his collaboration with Alabi, a tribal captain of the Saramaka. Though their traditions were worlds apart, the two men had been born in the 1740s about 200 miles from each other. Christian Ludwig Schumann was the son of a Saxon theologian who converted to the Herrenhutter, as the Moravian brother were called, came with his wife to Berbice, which is just west of Suriname, on a mission to the Arawak Indians. One of his father's earliest accomplishments was an Arawak German dictionary and grammar. And there you see the father with uh, an Arawak. Uh, young Christian Ludwig went, was sent to Saxony for studies with the brethren and then returned to Suriname in 1776, establishing himself with the mission far south in the Saramaca River. 
A year later, he was deeply disheartened by the illness felling him and his fellow brethren. The Europeans were sick a lot of the time. <laughs> sure enough, they did not do it. Uh, uh, he was disheartened by that, and even more by the very few converts among the Saramaka whom they had won to Jesus. It is particularly painful, he said, particularly painful to me that the preaching of the gospel here for such a long time has borne no fruit. I have shed many tears because of this. Nonetheless, he prayed to the Savior for endurance and soon plunged into work on the dictionary. His collaborator was Alibi, born on the Saramaka River to a great tribal chief and to a grand mama, that is, a priestess. As a teenager, Alibi had accompanied his father to peace negotiations with the Suriname government. And after his father's death in battle in 1767, he became captain of his Saramakan village. This gave him local authority, but also required canoeing down river to meetings with the colonial administrators and authorities where he had to speak Sranan rather than his native Saramakan. And these two Creoles are similar, but it, it, it was a language learning. And I don't have any picture of, of Alibi but I'm gonna just show you two Saramakans, just to give you a sense. And this is one uh, by Stedman, who had come to Suriname as part of uh, a spe special mercenary troop to help put down the Maroons, not the ones that had made peace, but, but others. And he actually was quite impressed with the Saramakans. And there is his picture of a Maroon warrior. And here is a man from the, uh, around 1900, so he will stand in for Alibi for me, <laughs> for us. In the next, uh, so, uh, in the same years uh, that he was tribal chief and going to town to Paramaro to negotiate occasionally, in the same years, Alibi was drawing close to the Moravian brethren. Quote, the sufferings of Jesus have made a great impression on Alibi, one of the missionaries wrote. His heart is taken with the Gospels. Alibi proceeded to a number of tests shooting an obia, and an obia is a sacred object, like an amulet, but it can be fairly large. Uh, it's imbued with a god, and he shot one to see what would happen. Uh, and killing a divine snake to see if the gods would then take revenge, as the many believers around him prophesied they would. But the gods were powerless, and Alibi was baptized as Johannes in 1771. It was relief, he said, to lay down the constant burdens of pacifying his special gado and the spirits of the dead and simply bask in the love and passion of Jesus. And I don't know how many of you have worked on the early Protestant Reformation, but if you have, some of the things that I have just described, including even the test of shooting, of shooting uh, or, putting, or trying to burn a, a, a Catholic saint, a, a, a statue of a saint, uh, you find exactly this kind of, pro of pr procedure. And even this uh, description of uh, laying down the constant burdens of pacifying his special gado, some of the descriptions of early uh, Protestant converts, especially those who had been religious, that has been, pre uh, been either priests or had been monks before, talked about what a relief they saw Protestant because they didn't have to keep doing so many works all the time. So this, when I read this, it was an interesting conversion uh, description of self-testing uh, uh, by Alibi, um, at any rate. 
In the next years, Alibi constructed a life as both a Saramakan and as a Christian. He headed the village council, arbitrating disputes and judging cases of sorcerer poisoners with as much severity as his clansmen who still clung to the Saramakan gods. If some Saramaka wanted to see Alibi dead because of what they considered his constant sacrilege, the reputation of his ancestors, his role as a distributor of yearly goods from the colonial government, and his first personal force kept him in place, even though he was a Christian. He was eventually to become tribal chief of all the Saramaka. As a believer in Jesus, Johannes Alibi wanted to make a Saramaka Christianity through language. In contrast with the very few other male converts of his day who had learned to read and write, uh, even some of them to write, Alibi's gifts were of memory and speech. Quote, he had such an extraordinary memory, one brother said of him, that he could easily recall by heart all the biblical phrases from the first missionaries, which had been little by little incorporated into his deficient native tongue. He sought every opportunity to be instructed on the true meaning of these biblical expressions so that he could preach them clearly to his Saramaka brothers. It was in this spirit of trying to further a Saramakan Christianity that could flourish among the forest gardens and rice fields of the black, free blacks that Johannes Alibi approached the Saramaka German Dictionary Project of Brother Schumann. The joint work was presumably oral, with Schumann recording, I have gone over everything exhaustively with Johannes every day, Schumann said, and improved it accordingly. The resulting dictionary is not a German Saramakan handbook for a Christian trying to write sermons in Saramakan or translate hymns or parts of the gospel into that language. Schumann himself made such translations in another place. Rather, it is a Saramakan German entry into the life and language of the Saramaka Maroons, a way to understand what they are saying and to be part of a conversation on many subjects. Some thousand words are given in alphabetical order. It's, um, the alphabetical order is by Saramakan, not by German. He was writing in German and in Saramakan. So it's, it's, it's by, uh, by Saramakan. Uh, <clears throat> so they are given uh, with, uh, in alphabetical order with multiple definitions and frequent examples of word use in sentences. Webs of precise terms for local fruits, plants, animals, and fish as they are eaten, caught, hunted, or observed. For the cultivation of rice and manioc and the, pre the preparation of flour. For garments for men and women and children and their cloth. The delicate matters of barter and bargaining are suggested by the words kajenyi and trucka. Trucka, of course, reminds us of the word truck, which we use for exchange, which can mean either exchange or deceive. Letters of status are indicated from the heady man, grand man, and gendryman at the top to the pobriman, the poti at the bottom, while fry, the word for free, a status long struggled for for the Saramaka, carries also the meaning of peace. Saramaka religious beliefs are present in the dictionary in a way that fits better with Johannes Alibi's hopes for a reformed Saramaka than with a missionary's hunger for full information. Gado appears as a universal high god, but the panoply of Saramaka gods, well known to this son of a priestess mother, is present only in the Boma, quote, the boa constrictor, a great god of the blacks. That is the snake that Alibi had shot in his test for conversion. The two forms of the soul, the Gigi and the Jorka, both of them words from the West African Gabe language, but which are taken over 
in the Creole language, are defined simply as spirit or ghost, without the important distinction between the two made in, this, in, your, in Africa and also made by the religious practitioners who remain uh, African, the Gigi returning to the name, say, God at death, while the Jorka remains in the world of the living to help or haunt. The dictionary does elaborate, however, on a set of African-derived words for religious practices deemed, quote, superstitious, uh, both by Schumann and by the convert, Alibi. Congra is the divination process of the gato man to establish guilt. If a chicken quill passes through the tongue easily, the person is innocent. If not, he's, he or she is guilty. Kandu is a special object hung to keep people away from a place, quote, like the strovish bundle of straw placed in a field in Germany, uh, Schumann adds. But the blacks have an extraordinary fear of it, as of witchcraft. Obia is defined in the dictionary, a bundle of medicinal, or medicinal herbs, herbs and other materials for the superstitious hocus-pocus and oracles of the Obiaman, the priest. And Tachina is the special food and object for which each black has a superstitious fear and must not eat it or use it, since he or she holds it for a god. Kandu, Obia, Tachina. These were the beliefs which had held Alibi captive during his pre-Christian days in what seemed to him never-ending obligation. We hear his relief in the entry for, for the word fada, loathing. Ten me fili frivo gada no hati, tu le monde soni fadi me. Since I have the peace of God in my heart, I have loathing for the vanities of the world. The dictionary was finished in 1778. Johannes Alibi remained loyal to the dream till the end of his life both Saramakan tribal chief and Christian, but few converts were won. As an old man in 1810, he could be heard speaking to his children and grandchildren of the blessed water of Christianity, while the village around him was filled with the drumming and songs of his clansmen, making new obias and new gato sticks, new sticks to be used in worshiping God. Christian Ludwig Schumann departed from Suriname in 1783, leaving one copy of his manuscript with his fellow missionaries there and another at the Herrenhut in Saxony before going on to do the Lord's work on the east coast of India. These, they never give up, <laughs> these brethren. <laughs> Let us interrupt our Suriname story for a moment and cross the ocean to Finnmark in 1725 to 1735 when Canute Lem was a missionary there because they were quite close connivered. Lem seems to have kept extensive notes on his conversations with Samis, as well as on their language, and drew on them for his publications during his subsequent years in Trondheim. His Danish Sami Dictionary of 1756 comprised some 666 pages of words and phrases, especially as used in the Porsanger Fjords. In octavo, an octavo size, it was small enough to fit into a missionary's pocket. Though the book made no mention of it, the Sami Anders Porsanger was in fact helping Knut Lem acquire and define its wide-ranging vocabulary with lots of variants. A close study of the dictionary, maybe people in this room, uh, might reveal Anders' influence and give further evidence for the kind of Sami Christianity this educated young convert hoped to shape. 
1767 account of the Laplanders of Finnmark, their language, manners, and religion, Lem actually named and described the Sami who were his informants, thereby adding to the reliability and liveliness of his text. For instance, Mela Olson from Parsangra Bay, quote, a man of character and well-deserving of belief, was a fount of detail on non-Christian religious practices. Olson told of a neighbor who, after hunting seals, had drunk from the cold stream and become violently, uh, from a cold stream and had become violently ill. Once recovered, he sacrificed an ox, excuse me, an ox, an ox, strewing its bones about near the stream so as to atone to, quote, the deity of the place. Another source of information was Henry Sorison, grandfather of Anders Porsanger, I'm quoting uh, uh, Lem here, a grandfather of Anders Porsanger, who in 1758, sent from his old school in Trondheim to the college, is now rector of the church. Uh, joined to the hospital of Trondheim, a pious and honest man. Henry Sorison, the grandfather of Anders, told Lem of, quote, certain subterranean beings resembling infants living near deep springs whom the Laps call Goiviter Kakalakajek. Well, unlike Johannes Alibi and Christian Schumann, Mel Olson and Henry Sorison were not consulting daily with Newton Lem as he wrote his description years later. But their voices and those of other Samis, and there are really um, quite a great number of them, I made a list of all of them, uh, directly named and quoted from, they are present in that book and have a certain force of their own. What stakes these men had in their conversations with Pastor Knut uh, Lem, what they learned from the exchange would be a question worth pursuing. Hope that you will do it. <laughs> but let us return to Christian Schumann's and Johannes Alibi's Saramachan German Dictionary. Unlike Lem's linguistic works, which went right into print, Schumann's manuscript was published only in 1914 by the great linguist Hugo Schuchart as a key document in the foundation of modern Creole language studies. I want to conclude with two figures who in some sense carry on the legacy of these Sranen, Saramachan, Dutch, and German speakers, their ambivalences, hopes, and affirmations. One is Hugo Schuchart himself. Born in Germany in 1842, Schuchart had studied philology with August Schleicher, a great figure in the foundation of German linguistic theory, whose ideas about language purity, this is Schleicher now, whose ideas um, about language purity embodied best in Sanskrit and the natural organic character of language change Schuchart would later challenge. From his post as professor in Graz, Austria, for many years, Schuchart wrote in defense of mixed languages, not pure languages, but mixed languages, showing that there was a mixture in vocabulary and even in the morphology of Slavic languages and, and in a Romance language like Romanian. And why should there not be mixture, he asked, when you see how people from different age groups, backgrounds, and localities actually live and cross over from town to country? Against the recent theory of the neo-grammarians that changes in pronunciation happened by themselves, automatically, as in nature, automatically, at the same time for everyone in the language group, Schuchart said no. Product pronunciation change comes about by the historical action of people, depending on whom they meet and whom they talk to and under what circumstances. And it could be sporadic, not regular, not organic. 
With such views, Shushart encouraged the serious studies of languages like Yiddish, which some look, linguists look down upon as, quote, very impure, with an, intentional, as, with an intentional deformation of German sounds and the twisting of meanings. And with such views, Shushart himself embarked on the study of the Portuguese, Spanish, English, and Dutch-based Creole languages spoken in different parts of the world, including in the Caribbean, by people whom themselves or their parents had only been recently emancipated from slavery. Here, linguists had been even more dismissive. These were not languages at all, but broken, barbarous, bastard, aberrant versions of real languages. And the people that spoke these languages were being disparaged as incapable of speaking anything better. Indifferent to such condemnation, Shushart sent inquiries in the 1880s to a few hundred colonial administrators, missionaries, and other prominent persons in places where he thought Creole languages and pigeons were spoken. And I have to say that he missed the trade pigeon, Rus Norsk. I was hoping to find a Scandinavian connection. But he did, he missed, he missed it and he didn't, he didn't, so too bad. But at any rate, he wrote uh, a, a few hundred other people. <laughs> For the early history of, a, of Creole languages, Suriname was a blessing since it was unusually well endowed with English, uh, with 18th century dictionaries and grammar books, only two of which you've heard about. Inclu you've heard about, but there's many more. Shushart worked from Schumann's manuscript in Paramaribo itself. And in publishing it, he undermined further the Indo-European-centered and Eurocentric judgment of language. And I quote him, when the Suriname black says, go, take, come, go, take, come, for fetch. To say fetch, you say go, take, come. We regard it with astonishment as an African peculiarity, though fetching is actually a question of three distinct acts. The peculiarity is ours. Is it more natural to say, I have hunger, in French, j'ai faim, than hunger have me, hungry qui see me, in, in Saramacan? The Suriname way of saying things was no more peculiar or unnatural than the European. One of the missionaries with whom Shushart had been in correspondence over the years was Samuel Ajaya Crowther, who in the late eight, oh, sorry, this, I'm sorry, this is, um, sorry, I missed a person. was Samuel Ajaya Crowther, who in the late 1880s was just ending his decades as bishop for the English Missionary Society, in what we now call Nigeria, and who had authored back in 1852 a remarkable vocabulary of the Yoruba language. He had, and and, and uh, Shushart was in touch with him. He knew this book and he was in touch with him about the general question of what Creole, Creoles, but this was a book on the Yoruba language. He had been born as Ajaya around 1806 in a Yoruba town where his father was a weaver and his mother a priestess of the great goddess Obatala. In 1821, when he was nearing 15, he was seized and enslaved by Oyo Muslim rebels who set fire to his town. Sold from person to person over a year, he finally reached the coast at Lagos where he was bought by Portuguese traders. Only a few hours out of port, the Portuguese ship was captured by a British man of war, po policing the African coast to disrupt the slave trade. The slaves were all freed and taken to Freetown in Sierra Leone, where Ajaya 
learned quickly to read and write, and was baptized as Samuel Crowther. Educated further, both in Freetown and in England, Crowther was sent by the, Christian, the Church Missionary Society on the 1841 Niger Expedition, uh, which was intended both to negotiate anti, a British expedition, to negotiate anti-slavery agreements with local rulers, and to pave the way for British trade stations and missionaries in the region. At its end, Crowther wrote back to the Church Missionary Society from the African coast, fervently, wi fervently wishing that Africans themselves might serve as missionaries rather than just European white people. Two years later, after more training in England, he was ordained a priest and soon was in Africa in his own Yoruba land as a missionary. It was there over the next eight years that he composed this vocabulary of the Yoruba language. Crowther worked both from his knowledge of the language and from extensive interviewing. Uh, as the Bishop of Sierra Leone said in the preface to the book, quote, the idiom idiomatic sayings interspersed throughout the book were taken down by Crowther from the lips of his countrymen in the course of common conversation. The vocabulary is framed, to be sure, by Crowther's wish, shared with his readers, for the day when all the dark continent shall speak the language of Canaan and swear to the Lord of hosts, quoting Isaiah 19. But in the course of defining and explaining words, along with occasional negative phrases in regard to some Yoruba religious belief, there is simple ethnographic description, and in some places, powerful affirmation of Yoruba paths to virtue and wisdom equivalent to Christian ones. For instance, in identifying Odumara, the god Odumara. Crowther just says, God the Almighty, and accepts him as the universal God that is the same as the Christian God. He's the high God, that's God. For the word Orisha, he comments both, quote, deity, ob ob object of worship, and God's idols. But he calls Obatala the great goddess without adding anything pejorative. And you remember that his mother had been the priestess to Obatala, so for her, he doesn't put in superstitious belief, he just defines it as, as uh, the great goddess. For Ifa, the god of divination, and probably the most active competitor among the Yoruba with Christian divinity, he simply says, the god of palm nuts. Use the palm nuts to do the divination. Crowther's most powerful affirmation of equivalence emerges in his, in his discussion of Yoruba proverbs. In the Yoruba, he remarks, uh, there is an, and I'm quoting him, there is an extraordinary exuberance of these sententious sayings, not confined to any particular caste undertaking to be the guide of the rest, but everywhere in the mouths of all, imparting a character to common conversation and marking out a people of more than ordinary shrewdness, intelligence, and discernment. Proverbs are the national poetry of the Yoruba, Yoruba he says, comparable to the Hebrew poetry of scriptures. And he goes on, they display ideas concerning the providence of God, the moral rectitude of all actions, and the practice of social virtues, which we should hardly have expected to find in a people so wholly separated from the influence of that Christian revelation which God has pleased to make of himself to man. Crowther then gives examples of proverbs in Yoruba, which, alas, I can't pronounce in Yoruba. I took them down in Yoruba. But he gives them an English translation to illustrate his point. He who ignores another injures himself. Ear, hear the other side of the question 
before you decide. Everything has a price, but no one can set a price upon blood, and many, many more. The language books and dictionaries I've been telling you about were all filling in a wide cultural gap. Ordinarily attributed to a single author whose name is on the title page, the books were of necessity collaborative products. Slave collaborators could influence the content by what they passed on and what they withheld, and could learn something of the intentions and mentalities of masters and their agents. A free, free black maroon could take over a missionary project for certain entries and shape them in his own way. For all those involved in making these books, the repeated practice of finding equivalence and identifying difference was in itself a political, social, intellectual, and even spiritual exercise. Participants and ultimately readers are brought to acknowledge the presence of others in the human conversation in both their strangeness and their familiarity. While such an exercise may seem like weak defense against the force of racist enslavement, ethnic cleansing, and the persecution of heretics and infidels. Still, giving voice to human understanding can contribute to the chorus of human solidarity. And who knows, one day this song may be loud enough to drown out the angry shouts of hate. to get their thoughts together. <laughs> Anybody want to break the ice? <laughs> uh, I can ask a question. Okay, we'll get, go break the ice this way. Yes, maybe. Uh, uh, just how do you work when you do all these uh, this, uh, studies? Yeah. Yes, well, I, I have been often to, to Suriname, and I have been often to the archives uh, of the colony, which are in The Hague, although they're now making digitation and making copies for, for in Paramaribo itself. Uh, uh, and I've used, uh, s s also I've used a lot of books from the, from the 18th century. Just this morning I went to the Gunneris Library. I, I had used uh, some of Lem's work at the University of Toronto, uh, we have we have uh, some in the rare book collection, but I wanted to see more of them. So you know, wor working on the books themselves is is uh, very very important. The uh, and I uh, uh, I just just a few days ago I got another dictionary. I've shared this with you. In addition to doing the Saramakan dictionary with Olaby, where he identifies uh, in his diary identifies Olaby, so you can I could. I could, and we've got, for him, we've got, this, we've got the letters that the Moravian brothers wrote in their diaries. So that's where I got that. And those have been, actually, some of them are published as well as being in archives. But just the other day, I finally, for the first time, saw the dictionary that he did on Sranen. He, I heard, you heard about this, the, the Saramakan 
German dictionary. But he did uh, an even bigger one. I've just got it uh, in Sranen. Of course, I wanted to see if there were informants. And it's so interesting. He doesn't name anybody, although I'll go back and look at his diary to see what he says there. But he says very often, he quotes them. He says, we say, we blacks say, we bla it's, it's in Sranen, we blacks say this thing. We, so you, you can see, that's, you can see it right there in the text. But you have to contextualize it, you know, by doing the background, knowing about the uh, the, the Moravians and, and so forth. The the, uh, the one the, just since you asked me how I work, I'll just, the one by Peter Van Dyke was extraordinarily difficult to work out because uh, some the few the linguists I mentioned before love Suriname. After Shushart put this on the map uh, in his publication and really founded the field, he is the founder and and. In a way, it grows out of this text, because this was the text he worked on, got interested in. Uh, but uh, linguists then, not historians, but linguists, not historians, but linguists looked at this Peter Van Dyke book to see about pronunciation, vowels, diphthongs, and the things, the important, the really important things that they do, but they didn't know what to do with Peter Van Dyke. Was he, you know, who was this person? And the, uh, what the historian does is you go to the archives and you try to find out about Peter Van Dyke. He dedicated it to someone. Uh, the young historians here or the social scholars here will know that the minute you find a dedication, you run with it because that suggests a network and a link. Who was this person? So I found out who the dedicatee was <laughs> and I could therefore locate him. I could see him possibly, in a, the, the dedicatee was a Lutheran which was you know, interesting. I could see what plantation he was. I could actually, you know, f I could find him on the, on the common wine river. So that, that's, you, you, you sort of know how to, to, to amplify your subject, but then you ultimately you go back to whatever text that you're working on and, and just uh, to, to try to explicate uh, some of the religious beliefs that I described for you. I was working not only from those texts, but from two other kinds of sources. Uh, extensive sources from Africa, and I'm very committed to the belief that if you're going to work on slavery, whether it's in a Danish colony of, uh, or it's in a uh, Dutch colony, whatever, you really must have the African, do some work on the African background, because this is, these are the languages, cultures, and memories that the slaves bring with them, and though they change in the process of living in these different islands. So for that, I went back to look at the, the, uh, the sources. Uh, we have uh, descriptions. I'm particularly interested in a figure, even though he's 19th century, uh, such as Crowther, because then you have somebody who was brought up, uh, though he became a Christian, he was brought up in Africa. But you have uh, you know, travelers, and one of the best sources, I'm gonna mispronounce his name, is Romer. Uh, one of the really wonderful, how do you pronounce that? Well, I won't worry about that, you know, Romer, who was the agent for the Dutch, <laughs> for the Danish uh, West Africa Company in Christiana, Fred, Everybody knows about him, right? Yes, Romer, major source for the, uh, 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 and uh, I'm, I'm giving you a major source, urging, hoping we'll know about him, and I'm sure some of, I know people here have worked on him. Uh, and just to give you another example of a text that was actually very useful in things like the Gigi and the Yorka, among other texts, uh, is Oldenborg, Oldendorp, the Moravian brethren who worked in the Danish uh, colonies, and uh, St. Croix. Uh, and he actually interviewed slaves and di didn't just say, what do you do now? He said, what did you do back home? Now, so I didn't just work, in other words, from this one text, 
where, where he only said ghost and spirit anyway. I worked in other kinds of, of, of sources uh, to, to enrich that. So that's the kind of thing. I mean, I, other people, that's what I do, but that's what people do, uh, uh, to try to, to create, uh, uh, a, to, to enter the cultural world of people, for the most part, who are not literate and have not left us diaries and letters. Today you have been reading in Norwegian books. I'm sorry? You have been reading Norwegian books today? Yeah, uh, today? Yeah, you have been reading Norwegian books today? Well, I, uh, I, I uh, went to the Gunnaris uh, and I, uh, the, the four books I wanted, I wanted to see uh, a manuscript and uh, two books by Lem, which is we didn't have. I actually was hoping that I could get a sign. They were, uh, one was a grammar book. I was I was looking I was looking to see if I could get more signs of collaboration. Actually, I, I mean not not that that's the only thing, but that's what I'm interested in. I'm trying to see. Uh, and the other book that I looked at, I had read an English translation, but it's uh, by uh, Christian Proton, who was the son of a uh, rather important African woman and a uh, Danish officer uh, in Accra uh, in Christianborg. Uh, and he was converted, uh, spent some time, I guess, with Ludwig Holberg uh, in, uh, uh, in Norway, uh, uh, in Denmark, I guess it was, uh, and then came back to, uh, to Africa, uh, to, to Accra, where he taught, he, was, he lists himself on the title page of the book, is the teacher of mulatto children, and there were teachers of children like him who had... Uh, Danish-Norwegian parents uh, and uh, African mothers. And it's a very interesting, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the first books we have by a man like Crowther, who's 19th century. This is uh, a book in the, uh, what, I forget my date here, 1748, no, 1760, something of this kind. Uh, and uh, he begins with a, uh, with a little bit about the language and then with translating some of the uh, prayers and uh, the uh, credo into, now you see, it was so interesting. I read it in English, but I really wanted to see it in uh, uh, in. Uh, it's, it's, it's a book about Fatty. I'm sorry, I didn't explain. It's, it, he's talking about the, the Fatty language and the language spoken in Accra, and so he has a double translation uh, of, of of prayers of the Lutheran Catechism. A, a very brief, very brief. He says the least in Credo, and then some uh, business about grammar. Uh, and one of the things that I was interested to see. Uh, first of all, who owned the book, uh, and there, sure enough, it, it had a signature in it, and it was owned uh, by an important figure in 18th century uh, Trondheim. But secondly, uh, I wanted to confirm what I'd seen in English translation, what he called God. <laughs> I wanted to see what word he used for God. Uh, in uh, uh, Infanti and, 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 and uh, Akan. And he used uh, an African word. He didn't just sort of put in some spelling of God. Uh, uh, he, used, he used an African word. Uh, and it's the same word. Uh, he actually had a different one for Fanta and the one for Akan. But the word he had, the Fanta word, is exactly the word for high God that you get in Suriname. I used Gado, but there's another name, uh, Jean Campan. Uh, you can either say Gado, but Gado can mean all kinds of gods, like the Yorish, all kinds. But if you really want to refer to the high God in Suriname, you say, uh, it's sort of like Nyan Kampan, and that's what he has. 
So that was, you know, to, you see why that would be interesting to discover. So that was why I looked at, at uh, I wanted to see the original uh, as it appeared. Now you say, well, how did I manage with the, uh, the, Nor the, the Danish Norwegian? Well, I could get the, I could know what the Lutheran credo says. <laughs> I, could, I could figure that out, have a dictionary. And so I was, you know, I was just managing. Fortunately, one of the, li the, the Lem books was a Latin, <laughs> thank goodness, was a Latin lap uh, dictionary. So I had the Latin. <laughs> that made. Uh, so <laughs> <Yes>. <coughs> I, I wondered if, um, when you're doing your research methods in Suriname, um, have you. Uh, be spoken to the people uh, who have uh, their ancestors, slaves, and also if this uh, developing of dictionaries in the Creole language is that um, developing their identities when they have been emancipated and they are yes. not long, yes. no longer slaves. Okay. Yeah. Um, I have met people uh, and it's an, I've met them, uh, I've been to Suriname several times and I have some friends. Uh, my particular friend is Cynthia McLeod, who's one of Suriname's most important novelists, although she spends a lot of time in, in Belgium and in, in, in the Netherlands, uh, partly because there was a terrible political situation for a while and many intellectuals had to leave. But she's still deeply, in, so I have friends. But with a, one, of the most, one of the ways I've met people is, and this uh, is, uh, doing genealogical research on their families. I meet them in the archives, and it's lots of fun to talk to them. And interestingly enough, unlike Africa, where having a slave as an ancestor is something that you try to conceal, and this becomes, maybe some of you are aware of this, and this becomes very difficult for young people who are trying to do work with a contemporary resonance, even interviewing people, because they hard to find people who will talk to them. Unlike Africa, in the Caribbean and in the, in the States right now, maybe, maybe it's changing in Africa, but that's what I've heard very recently, uh, these people are lo looking for their ancestors wherever they can find them. And they don't, they don't mind having, in Suriname, people will say, oh, I have Jewish ancestors and Calvinist ancestors and black Af ancestors, and, and uh, you know, they, they're, they, they're very, very willing to talk about it. Now, what happened to the language? Sranan is the, language of independent Suriname. So that's the language. It is now a fully, uh, the, the newspapers are also in Dutch, but Swanen is the, is the formal language. So it, is, it has become you know, a literary language. I, I don't know, uh, I have not been at, at the university. The only time I've been at the university it was for a conference. So we were multilingual. There, it was English, Dutch, French. It was all the Caribbean languages. I don't know what the language of instruction is. That's a good, good to know. But in principle, Sranen is consi is considered a a full a full language and and the language the formal language of the state. So, thank you. <laughs> okay. I think think we say uh, thank you a lot. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your. Patience and <laughs> <laughs> <Thank you. laughs>